This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Adrian Bastianelli from the Washington, D.C. office of Bakar and Abramson. The subject is cross-cultural negotiations and construction deals. Adrian, delighted to have you. And you and I have known each other for years, but let's begin with a little discussion today about the summary of your law practice and your terrific amount of experience in construction law. I always say that I come by uh, construction law pretty naturally. In fact, I feel like I was born into it. I started as a as an engineer and uh, handling claims for the federal government against the contractor, and for 45 years have been practicing construction law. Most of it's been representing the contractor, but everybody else. Uh, And as I get a little bit older, the tail end of it has been serving as a neutral, such as mediator, arbitrator, and a DRB member. So it's it's worked out well and been fun. Well, as of course many of our listeners already know, and for those who don't, you have been a hero among construction law practitioners to many of us for your terrific uh, dedication to the forum on the construction industry, as well as um, your extensive involvement in numerous industry groups. Adrian, what's motivated you to be so involved and work so hard in, for example, uh, the ABA Forum? One of the keys to my life is that my closest personal friends almost all came from the ABA Forum, uh, American College of Construction Lawyers, and other organizations. I think I've got a huge amount of good out of uh, all of those organizations, and that's, that's, that's where I always start. But there's not only the camaraderie, but there's the, the learning experience that you get from participating and the chance to give back to, to the young people. Well, on behalf of of so many lawyers who have learned so much from you, thank you. Now, let's turn to the subject of our discussion today, cross-culture construction negotiations. Now, what do you mean by cross-culture negotiations? The focus of today and the focus of a paper that I'm writing is on negotiations between people of different countries, different ethnicities. Uh, But that's not the only place where you have cross-cultural negotiations. Uh, The negotiations between a contractor 
and an engineer are completely, the two parties act completely different between a government representative and a private sector person, between a lawyer and a business person negotiate completely different, uh, even going further down negotiations between a millennial and a baby boomer or even a man and a woman negotiate differently. So uh, when I refer to cross-cultural negotiations, it's between people of two different cultures. You were telling me uh, earlier about an example involving a Professor Singh from Pepperdine. Would you tell our listeners about that? Professor Singh did what I thought was an extremely interesting experiment. He took some some students from the business school and some students from the law school and did a mock negotiation. And it it went well. Each of them ultimately settled their negotiation, but all of them were frustrated with the other party because the business person was looking to simply close the deal, get the dollars, get the time settled and move on, whereas the lawyers were all focused on the risk and how they were going to mitigate the risks or eliminate the risk for the future. They were just simply talking past each other in the negotiations and didn't know, didn't understand what the other was trying to do. Talk about, Adrian, if you will, a little bit, your own background. Now, those of us who know you know you come from West Virginia and your career practicing in Washington, D.C. What did you learn about those cultural differences as you look at this issue? Well, they couldn't be any more culturally different. Uh, I look at West Virginia uh, where I was born and raised and still have family and still have roots. And I think my cultural background is very much West Virginia. One of the cultural traits for them is uh, what's called collectivism. And as opposed to individualism, it is the group pulling together and working together as opposed to a lot of individuals working. And I have one of my favorite examples, uh, not too many years ago, I had a big case in West Virginia and decided and thought, well, this is going to be great. I can go home and everybody's going to accept me and it's, this is going to be good. And I walked into the meeting and the person running the meeting thanked me for coming all the way from Washington, D.C. And you can hear my culture because there's an R in Washington. <laughs> I did. Uh, when you come from West Virginia. Uh, and he said it like uh, I was from Outer Mongolia as opposed to a few miles down the road. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm just like you. I'm one of you. I, can't you listen to the way I talk and know that I'm, I'm a West Virginian? My family lives right down the road from where we're at. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Bastianelli, when you leave West Virginia, you're no longer from West Virginia, giving me the sign that I wasn't going to be part of the group. I wasn't part of the collectivism. Well, I hope you won the case, Adrian. 
Well, we settled the case, <laughs> which is what what we needed to do from both sides. Well, let, well, let's let's look at some real basics here. What do you mean by culture when you use that term? Uh, the definition when you start reading the books, and there, there's some really excellent literature out there where people have studied various cultures to determine what their common traits are. And the definition that of culture and all of them is characteristics that are shared by me- members of a particular group. It's what makes one group different uh, from another group. Uh, the, they are typically not inherited. They're learned traits where human nature is something that uh, is inherited, uh, human nature being something like love, joy, sadness, fear. We all hate, we all love, and that's that's an inherited trait, whereas culture is a learned trait and can be changed. It seems to me, though, that we're heading down a slippery slope here when we start trying to stereotype people based on their cultural group or their nationality. Do you really want to assign to a particular person X or Y attributes merely on where they come from? I think if you think about it for two seconds, you would say absolutely not. You can't, you can't and shouldn't stereotype people because people from, say, West Virginia are not all alike. They don't have the same traits, and to assume they do would be a great mistake. However, when you look at the literature, uh, what the literature will tell you, what the literature refers to is a dominant trait, a trait that a majority of a group has and thereby distinguishes that group. For example, in the United States, time is important. People are sensitive to time generally, not all people. Whereas you go to the Latin countries and time is as unimportant as it, as it could be. So those are dominant traits with regard to time of the two groups. Let me ask you a question about how culture affects not only our opposing party, but how it affects us. You and I were talking previously about how you're cognizant that the culture that you've learned shapes the way that you view the negotiation. I think the most important thing you can do when you have a cross-cultural negotiation is to understand yourself and your traits before you start dealing with the traits of the other party because you can't really figure out how to communicate if you don't know your own. Now, I think anybody who you ask will say, well, I know my cultural traits, but there's a professor from American University who has written a book in which he has people walk through their life saying, what, were the, what was the culture of your grandparents? What was the culture of your parents? What was your culture in the sixth grade, in high school, in college, in each place along the road, and then look back and see what it's done to you. And what you find out is, what most people find out, is that they really don't know their embedded cultural traits 
And that's that's the starting point is to define that. And then you can look at the other party's traits. Fascinating. How do I avoid the tendency towards ethnocentricity? That is that my culture knows best. I think everybody believes their culture knows best. If you ask somebody in Washington, D.C., if their culture was better than somebody in West Virginia, obviously they're going to say D.C., but if you ask somebody from West Virginia the same thing, they'd say the people in D.C. are completely crazy. The The key part is to recognize generally there is no right or wrong culture. They are just different, and you have to accept that, particularly in the negotiation. If you sit down with people and ask them to explain their culture and why it is what it is, most people will do a good job of explaining to you. But I could explain pretty quickly why West Virginia is a collectivist, collectivist society as opposed to an individualist. So it's it's accepting it. And I maybe one more quick point. When you're negotiating, the key is not to try to change the culture of the other side. For example, Saudi Arabians' view of women is something that very few, if anybody, in the U.S. would accept. But if you're going to sit down and try to first change their view of women before you start negotiating the settlement or the deal, you're probably not going to get there. We'll be back with more of our podcast in just a moment. Welcome back to the podcast. We're with Adrian Bastianelli today, and the subject is cross-cultural construction negotiation. Adrian, before we took the break, we were talking about this matter of what are the silent kinds of clues that you might get from someone even before you start discussing a deal. Can you talk about that a little bit? Again, when you read the literature, one of the things that they say over and over is that culture is the silent language that only the people that are in the group under know and understand. And so if you're negotiating with, say, a Japanese person, for example, it will be very, it's hard enough to break through the language barrier and understand the language, but it's even harder when there's a silent language being spoken. So that if you go to a negotiation and the person starts like the typical person in the U.S. mediation, which I mediate, and puts out a very high offer or demand and says it's the last and final, they're not moving at all and turns it over to the other side for response. If you come from the U.S., you probably understand the silent language that the party meant when they said, this is my last and final, to mean only this is my last and final until I make the next offer. The Japanese person may well not understand that silent language. 
And if you can bear with me for a couple of seconds, I'll, I'll talk about a, one of my first negotiations when I was a young lawyer. We were hired. Uh, my law firm was contacted to send somebody to Malaysia and represent a Japanese contractor on a project, on a dam project on the Malaysia-Thai border. And one of the claims was that the communists and gun runners were coming down and killing the workers. So the, when they tried to decide who would go, they, de, they decided to let a young associate go over there and handle the case because it didn't need a senior person. A wise, a wise decision, I must say. <laughs> a very wise decision from their perspective. But when I got there, it was a Canadian engineer, and the Japanese had negotiated with him, negotiated the claims over and over and over, and had gotten no place. And I said, well, let me go see what I can do. I went in, and it was a typical negotiation. We yelled at each other a little bit. We argued, and we got to a conclusion and settled the case, kept the claims at a much higher amount than the Japanese were looking for. At that point, I walked out of the room, and it was obvious that the, I thought they were going to all throw their arms around me. And it was obvious that they weren't happy. And I pulled one gentleman who was my friend aside, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, your aggressive negotiation caused us to lose face. They cared less about the amount of money I got than how I represented them with the Canadian. And, of course, the Canadian, when he negotiated with them, could not understand at all why they were doing what they were doing in the negotiations. So it was, it was a opening lesson and making sure that the two cultures understand each other and what's driving each other. Sometimes when it's even your own client. Yes. Yes, very much. Let's talk about time. That's, that's a particularly interesting uh, aspect of your paper. And you use a term monochronic as compared to polychronic. What's that about? The people who have done research have identified a lot of areas where cultures generally vary and time is one of them. It's to me the most fascinating because I'm somebody who is always there 10 minutes before the meeting's supposed to start at least. I should tell our listeners, Adrian, you were uh, available for the podcast 10 minutes early today, so you're, you're keeping <laughs> I, up your record. I was. So I, I'm the worst of that. My sister-in-law is the worst. She's the polychronic one. She's never been on time for anything in her life and, and never gets anything done on time. So the they break the uh, cultures into two parts. The culture, which is predominant in the U.S., which is monochronic, looks at time as being extremely limited. And you need to make, you look at the task and you put the ta make the task fit the time available. So when the associate walks in the room and says, here's the task, the first thing the associate generally asks is how long do I have? Because that's going to define my task. And the time-honored thing, time-honored statement in the U.S. is time is money because that's the more, most important thing. When somebody shows up late, 
to a meeting, they often offend the other side. Polyacronic view is that time is limitless, and you'll get the task done when you get the task done, but, but there's always more time to do it out there. And their favorite statement would be, stop and smell the roses and enjoy your life. Don't be dictated to by the clock and showing up at a meeting late is certainly not disrespect. It's the starting point is just a time that you would like to get to, but if you don't get there, so be it. There probably aren't a lot of polychronic construction managers successfully employed by American companies. I think putting the word American in front of countries, you're probably right. I I was going to say I just finished uh, an arbitration in Honolulu with people from some uh, Pacific Islands. And when we set the start time, they would say at 9 o'clock, they would show up at 9.15 or 9.30 being ready to go whenever they got there. And when they ran out of witnesses, they'd go home and relax and enjoy time, enjoy life. And there I was sitting in my monochronic state, seething, and the lawyer from Honolulu said, Adrian, relax. This is the way business is done here. You know, another one of the um, distinctions that you draw in your work is about conflict, or or sometimes you refer to it as uncertainty. And those of us in the U.S., that's a part of our lives. We, To some extent, I suppose you could say is that the construction industry has accepted that and thrives on it. But other societies don't like that uncertainty or that risk factor. How do you deal with those people? I think you deal with all of these issues in the side. Let me let me back up as to the uh, uncertainty avoidance because they're clearly that is clearly one of the areas where different cultures are different. Some people like the U.S. love conflict, or at least that's the perception. A lot of countries do not like conflict. They do. They want everything structured. So at least in For that particular trait, if you know the other side comes from a very structured country, you need to spend time before the negotiation or mediation starts laying out a very structured way of negotiating and secondly, and maybe more importantly, recognizing there's there's likely to be a impasse at some point that results from the lack of understanding of the other's culture. So you need to put in place some way of overcoming that impasse if it occurs. Adrian, let's let's consider some takeaways. What are the kinds of general rules or pieces of advice that you give to younger lawyers who are starting to think about these cultural issues as more and more of us are exposed to international kinds of problems? It is, it's again, recognizing that they exist, first of all, and addressing them. And I think the way to address them is to get them out on the table, ask the questions of the other party as to what is their culture, why is their culture the way it is, so you understand. And like I said a few minutes ago, 
Uh, most people don't ask the questions because they think they're going to offend the other party. But if you ask the questions in a non-judgmental way, most people would love to talk about their culture, and it's good to do. The second part is openness. People are afraid that somebody's going to cheat them, or they're going to end up in a bad deal, and that gets to uh, be even more so when there are cultural problems and the silent language is out there and they're not uh, not sure they understand what's happening. They think they're going to be taken advantage of. So the, it's critical to exchange more information so each party knows and understands what the other party, all the information or has sufficient information to make a good decision, to reach a good answer on their own. I know that it's typical of your work to do a, a wide variety of research and really look at this. Can you refer us to a couple of articles that uh, you felt were particularly uh, useful to you in, in uh, preparing your analysis? Well, there's a gentleman named Geert Hofstede, a Dutchman, H-O-E-F-S-T-E-D, probably pronouncing his name wrong, but when you start doing the research, you will find that he has done all of the base research, and he's, the, I think, the best writer on the subject and has numerous articles out there. But then there are two wonderful books, one, one called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands. I think it says, just describes culture perfectly, and it takes over 60 countries, and it goes through each one of them and tells you what their culture is. And if you're going to travel to a country, I think it's well worth the, the price of it to get it and review it. If you're going to negotiate with somebody that's from another culture, it's worth it. And then the same woman who wrote the first book now has a second book published by the ABA called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands, Courtrooms to Corporate Councils. And it takes the legal side and the negotiation side and gives you uh, talks about why those systems, what their culture is and why, why they are that way. It gives you good tips on how to negotiate and how to handle uh, the legal system in probably about 50 countries. Both those books are exceptional. Thank you so very much for appearing on the podcast, Adrian. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your doing the podcast. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.